0: It's a Wednesday afternoon, and I'm standing online line at Five Guys in Terminal B so I can purchase a styrofoam container of fats, oils, sugars, and carbohydrates to bring up to the tower with me. I know I should be dieting and exercising, and I vow things will change next week. Of course, this burger and those fries cannot do what a visit from Ben would do. Now I notice a few customers ahead is a guy from the day shift a nice kid named Devin. He's the chapter representative for the National Black Coalition of Federal Aviation Employees, and we always bust each other's shoes. I recently texted him at Black Controllers' Lives Don't Matter. Devin picks up his order, then turns and stops. He's with a young woman. Mike, what's good? I shrug, utter despair, nihilism. Same shit, different day. He's a friend from upstairs, Devin says to the woman. Mike, my girlfriend, Anna Wilkins. She smiles as I shake her hand, and a distant, far-distant bell slightly rings. I shouldn't, but I stare at her. Anna is a beautiful woman in her early thirties, bright-eyed, long-limbed, full of energy. I say hello, and she says it's nice to meet me. And... I want to tell her we've met. Your full name is Shiana Wilkins, and I've known you most of my existence. In the oddest of ways, it's as if we were sprung from the same loins. Thomas Mullen Sr. helped give life to six children, and one little girl died. But then, at great personal risk, he marched into a hellish inferno and gave new life to yet another child, Shiana. And here you are here we are. Instead, of course, I just tell Anna I hope to see her again, and Devin says he'll catch up with me in the hellhole. As they walk away, I watch them, and before they reach the exit doors, I see her turn and look back at me. I'm in Manhattan at a comedy club called Funny Bones. Last year, Sam crapped out and canceled his gig here, citing the upcoming marriage and baby. I was concerned he was walking away from stand-up without giving it a chance, but happily I was wrong, because he's just taken the stage. His life has been busy, too, only with positive developments. I served as best man at the wedding in Hoboken, and it was a fantastic night. The wine, the food, the band, the undulating belly dancer. During my toast, I pretended I just discovered Sam was Muslim, or I never would have hung out with him. And does the government know this guy talks to airplanes flying past Manhattan? Too soon, Sam yelled. Meanwhile, Deborah intentionally sat me beside her college roommate, a nice woman from Chicago, a chef at a Hilton. Her name was Lizzie, just like my dead sister, and she was bright, engaging, attractive. We danced one dance, and then I found excuses to avoid her. Later at the bar, she cornered me. I looked at this intelligent, personable, absolutely lovely woman whom most men would be thrilled to court. You know, we've been thrown together, right? We're supposed to hook up tonight. I could only manage, oh. Good toast, by the way. You're a funny guy. Anyway, let's get our story straight. How about this New York, Chicago, too much work doing the long-distance thing, okay? I nodded. Yes, my fear of dating kicked in, but it wasn't just Lizzie. My heart stung all night because there was no way I could arrange for Ben to attend. This was the first major event he had missed. My fear was he'd miss dozens more. The baby arrived in April and dramatically changed Sam's life, not just in the usual ways, but an infant did what years of talking to airplanes hadn't. Henry provided Sam with his best comedy fodder. I'm genuinely laughing now, not because he's a friend I love. His material was always language based, but now he's an excellent mime, standing before us changing an imaginary baby. A clean diaper in his mouth, an ankle in one hand, a dirty diaper in the other hand, his foot vainly searching, tap tap, for the pail and not finding it. He's actually hysterical, and Deborah and I hug as the audience roars. But we really react once the baby starts pissing in Sam's face, recalling the old boardwalk game where you shoot water at the clown's mouths. Simply put, he kills. So I was right. I had told Sam he'd be terrific at fathering, At my mother's birthday dinner, I mentioned when Ben will be returning from Israel. My siblings started jabbering, and a family reunion is planned. Katie calls Kerry in Florida, and soon everyone's on board. A contractor Tommy works with has a waterfront McMansion for rent on Long Beach Island in New Jersey. So that's that. My mother seems especially happy, particularly after it's pointed out all her grandchildren will be together. Once Ben arrives from Israel, that is. Delaware is an odd place with an odd Napoleonic complex, like a small man always itching for a fight. What else explains the first state? License plates. Back when I first arrived in Dover, I explored up and down DuPont Highway, which the locals call Route 13 and for a small state it offered surprisingly large vistas. I was yearning for something but didn't know what, and instead found places to drink. For some reason, not geographically apparent, Dover loves barbecue, and I tried them all before settling on Little Richard's, right outside the base. Sam and I thought it hysterical that if military intelligence types spied on us, their reports and clandestine photos would confirm their only active-duty Muslim spent an inordinate amount of time eating spare ribs. Little Richards is where I met Loretta, a divorced woman 10 years older, who'd been stranded with two young kids and a rusty Plymouth by a chief master sergeant eager to be transferred anywhere she didn't live like Baghdad. She was an assistant admin in Bay Health headquarters and often banged in sick so we could spend the entire day in bed. I don't like the term MILF, but it's hard denying my track record with divorced moms. I abruptly broke it off when Loretta kept mentioning marriage. Cowardly of me, I know, but I was only 24, so I spent more time on base seeking new avenues to expend energy. I finally found it on the 436th Airline Wing Boxing Team. A former coach from the Air Force Academy rode us hard. It was great exercise, and I loved channeling all that youthful frustration and anger by slugging it out legally and safely. Though, looking back, I have no idea why I was so frustrated or angry. Then, all this comes forth while I'm browsing online for an inexpensive gym. But instead of choosing a unisex spa with computerized equipment, a juice bar, pink dumbbells, and Zumba instructors, I descend into a hellish basement in Woodhaven to visit the Ring of Fire Boxing Club. The place is as old school as a Bowery Boys flick, and at first there isn't a woman in sight. I immediately realize I like this, and then I immediately question if I'm misogynistic and then I immediately question why wanting to train among my peers is misogynistic, and then I immediately cite many institutions where both men and women prefer to be among themselves. While I internally debate, I'm interrupted by the manager appearing before me. The manager is a she. Her name is Archie, and she seems to be easing into her 60s. She has dark skin and an odd... Caribbean accent? And though she's graying and battered, the shoulders and biceps in her ripped sweatshirt speak of a body that once dispensed violence. We take a tour, and I realize with an icy combination of excitement and concern, this place is truly hardcore. Down in Dover, we fought in baggy cotton shorts and t-shirts. With heavily padded gloves and headgear, true knockouts were rare. But the boys at Ring of Fire are stripped to the waist and pounding away with hard gloves at nothing but exposed flesh from the belt lines to the hairlines. I agree to a month's membership, but since the place is deserted, I offer Archie fifty dollars for a private tutorial, and she points toward the ring. I hesitate, then quietly say, "I've never hit a girl before, so I don't know if training with her is a good idea." She laughs in response. But there's no mirth in that laugh. Within an hour, she has me sweating through drills, then hitting the catch pads. We start on the heavy bag, and even I realize how pathetically rusty I've become. I climb into the ring with her, and she dares me to throw punches. Of course, her aging reflexes continually deflect my fists time and again, and I stumble as she continually taps me upside the cheek. Finally, she speaks. Most of these guys, they headhunters. Uh, you were a body puncher. Uh, that's rare. Most knockouts are to the head. I nod. But she says rings true. It's all due to Eddie Conway in the fourth grade. For a month, he made my life at St. Rita's miserable, shoving me on line in the schoolyard, pushing me in the cloakroom, slapping me in the head in gym class. I sat at home and seethed and when Tommy arrived on leave from the Marines, and I seemed too quiet, I blurted out, I like to slug Eddie right in the nose. Tommy shook his head, explaining not only was Eddie taller, but too much could happen when a punch traveled so far to impact a small target. Instead, I should aim for a much closer and bigger target, his body. So the following morning in the schoolyard, before the snide remark could leave Eddie's lips, I punched him as hard as I could in the stomach, and he sank to the concrete right next to the nun's old Rambler station wagon. Three other kids who'd been similarly tormented by him all cheered, and fourth grade became tolerable again. This drama repeated itself, as dramas tend to, when Ben quietly told me in January about a bully named Yosef who trips boys when they're running. I listened carefully, and we discussed it at length. I stressed the importance of using words rather than violence. After I returned home, Ben seemed reluctant to discuss it by phone. On my next visit in February, he confirmed words hadn't helped, as they so often don't. So I told Ben since words had failed, he had every right to defend himself. Then I demonstrated technique. We didn't have long to wait. The very next day, Yosef tripped him. So Ben punched him in the stomach, and once again, it worked. Now he and Yosef are buddies. But I anticipate this will soon be raised in court by Ben's mother. I start telling the ballad of Eddie Conway to Archie, but she doesn't care. In fact, she doesn't want to know anything about my life, or work, or family. And I realize I like that. It's actually a relief. No talk of lawyers and judges in this one oasis. It's almost a new identity, one not consumed by the custody soap opera. Ring of Fire is a silo closed off from the rest of my histrionic life. I hand Archie a check and tell her I'll be back. And God help me, but I have only one thought as I drag my aching body into the shower. I'm so tired, I forget to feel guilty for thinking it. I just can't wait to hit someone. What I don't know is, each member at Ring of Fire must step up once a year during the monthly Friday night bouts. I will soon meet the opponent I'll fight this summer, a man considerably larger than me, Hugo Concepcion. But I will tell myself what have the last few years been, if not a lesson in digging deep and meeting challenges? My email volume increases tenfold as we prepare for the reunion at the beach. Excited missives on bedding, groceries, sunscreen. Tommy suggests I pick up Ben when he arrives at JFK so we can travel directly and save time. So I email my ex-wife because we seem somewhat more civil when communicating electronically. Hi. It'll make things much easier if we meet at baggage at JFK next Thursday to avoid traffic to New Jersey. All Ben needs is any favorite toys, books, etc., and dog if you found him. Please let me know. Thank you, M. A few hours later, she responds. That will be fine. We leave for a short vacation tomorrow and will not be near a phone until we get to New York City. I follow up. Okay, where are you going for vacay? She answers, somewhere warm. I don't know that these are the most important emails I'll ever receive in my life. I'm not sure I have the right address, because I'm standing in front of what looks like an abandoned building in Hollis, an area of Queens I rarely visit. There's no need to add it's a run-down section of Hollis, because for blocks and blocks, that's all I've seen. I hear loud voices, so I enter, assuming this is the location for my first court-ordered anger management group session. I take one last look at poor battered lovey, hoping she'll still be sitting next to this cracked sidewalk and rolled-up carpeting in an hour. The front foyer is empty, but it opens onto a large conference room that once must have been a restaurant or nightclub. Signs indicate a storage area for broken furniture, and a halfway house for recovering attics. There's a large circle of men in the center of the room, and I work my way toward them. An older Filipino guy spins his wheelchair in my direction and calls out, Welcome! I'm Dr. Navarro. Come, join us. Despite his cheer, the atmosphere hardly seems collegial, unlike the Fathers are critical to gathering. There are about ten men in all, Latino, Asian, African American, white. They may not represent an accurate demographic slice of America, but they do seem to fairly represent the face of the men's exercise yard at Rikers Island any given morning. I slide into an empty metal chair between a black man who, even while seated, looks close to seven feet tall and well over 300 pounds, and a grizzled, pale teenager with a red do-rag, and a Confederate flag tattoo on his forearm. Dr. Danilo Navarro nods at me. Please introduce yourself. I'm Mike. Obviously, I spoke far too timidly because there are snickers and even a loud kissing sound. Is it my demeanor? My hair? My dress? I carefully selected an ensemble of a navy blue golf shirt, tan chinos, and brown lace-up dockers, hoping to fit in with my new angry friends. But clearly, I've already committed a faux pas. Dr. Navarro holds up a hand. Please, please, thanks for coming, Mike. Uh, But first, you don't have any weapons on your person right now, do you? I shake my head. Good, because we have a zero-tolerance policy, not just on firearms, but also knives, switchblades, clubs, blackjacks, nunchucks, brass knuckles, box cutters, mace... I understand, I say, hoping there are no loopholes and fearing a ninja star will sizzle through the air at any moment. Good, Mike. Well, we're running through someone's story. Your story will be next. We've all got stories. He pats his wheelchair. I have a story, too. I obtained this vehicle at twenty. The owner of a bodega objected to me robbing him again. I nod as a tall, thin man named Rocco continues his saga. His black hair is piled high on his head, and there are multiple gold chains under his wife-beater. But even though those smooth arms and sunken chest are quite undefined, he still exudes a rather menacing persona. Rocco's tail is as old as dirt. He blew through a red light on Cross Bay Boulevard and was pulled over, but the officer with an attitude who rapped on his window was female the bitch rapped on the driver's side glass of a brand new Cadillac Escalade with a flashlight or some shit. So he did what any man would do and opened the door quickly and knocked her on her ass. But then the bitch's partner yanked open the passenger door and reached in with the club. So Rocco had to respond. Here there's much head nodding and affirmative grunting of the what can you do variety. So he cracked the asshole's wrist with the pipe he keeps under his seat for just such occasions. Needless to say, mayhem ensued. Fast forward the story, and now Rocco is here. A buffed-up Asian man provides the coda. My boy did what he had uh, done. Dr. Navarro, however, weighs in. Are we sure about that, Ray Ray? The law takes assaulting a police officer very, very seriously. So I'm wondering if there might have been another way for Rocco to have dealt with this, an alternative. Why don't we think about that and come back to it? Ray-Ray pulls on a gaudy purple bracelet dangling from his left wrist and rocks gently as he murmurs, This too shall pass. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. I'm considering if it's past or pass. But now another voice yells, Bitch deserved it! Throw in shade! There's nodding as if to say, We've all been there, brother! I respect your input, replies Dr. Navarro, and I certainly would fight for your right to express it, but let's hold that thought for right now. Uh, I want to bring our newest member into this. He turns his chair toward me. Mike, what's your story? One member of our group lodges a formal protest. Ain't this some fucking shit? White boy come into the damn door. I'm prepared to wait, but Dr. Navarro remains unflappable. Junior, you'll get your chance. Right now, the floor belongs to Mike. As I often do when I'm stalling, I cough. But the funny thing is, this time it's more than a delay tactic. Suddenly, I really do have a frog in my throat. And somehow, it doesn't seem appropriate to ask any of the fellas for an unopened bottle of Dasani water or a Hall's cherry-flavored cough drop. Finally, I spit out, (coughs) well, I'm Mike. Nope. We heard that! Comes from my right. I force a smile. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I was sent here by court. Uh, Jamaica. Criminal court? Asks Dr. Navarro. No, uh, family court. There's some murmuring, but I can't decode it yet. The doctor nods. Ah, I see. Are we talking domestic abuse here, Mike? I shake my head emphatically, No, God, no, it's my ex-wife, her husband. My son lives with them now. For the first time, I receive a positive response, and it's from the seven-foot giant to my left. You kicked this motherfucker's ass? Again, I shake my head. You know, no, well, I, I, I sort of warned him. I told him if he ever hurts my son, well, I'll kill him. The murmuring increases in volume, and Dr. Navarro leans in, his feet riding those metal footplates like a downhill skier. Uh, Mike, let's be clear. Your son's stepfather, did you threaten him with a, a kind of uh, any kind of weapon? Uh, menace him? Or did you hit him or lay hands on him? No, I just warned him. M- verbally. The room erupts. Fuck this fucking boy. Hotep gotta wait for this. Man, this is some lame-ass bullshit. Get this motherfucker's ass out of here. Fucking verbally? Even as he quiets the crowd, Dr. Navarro wheels toward me. Mike, oh, walk with me, please. I get up and follow him, taking the last look at my would-be comrades without arms. At the door, the doctor hits the brakes. I appreciate your coming, Mike, but I don't think this is the right venue. I don't believe you pose a threat to anyone at this time. Do you agree? I nod. I don't believe so either. Good. You know, I see this a lot. Guys like you, uh, uh, custody cases, the legal system. Uh, For some reason, judges like casting dads as violent predators. I I don't know. I guess men have a larger physical presence, uh, louder voices. But in my work, I deal with violent people every day. I know violent people, and you're not violent. No, I'm not. Well, I have your paperwork, and I'm going to contact the court in about two weeks. I'll tell them we've spoken. You've completed all the requirements, and I recommend you don't need to return. Will that work for you? Absolutely. I can't shake his hand fast enough. As I pull away from the curb, however, an uneasy thought does occur. I can't even carve out a place in anger management, one more venue in which I don't quite fit. I've never felt so alone. It's as though I'm a demographic of one. It's hard being optimistic because I miss Ben so terribly, but knowing he'll arrive later this week has me relaxing a bit. First, Ben, then the family vacation in New Jersey, a chance to breathe deeply. I arrive home late Tuesday and pick up the mail. There's an odd shaped, oversized envelope, and I see foreign stamps and a taped note from the post office indicating it was sent from Israel. I tear it open and see it signed by an Israeli attorney. 29, 615. Dear Mr. M. Mullen. This advises you, Benjamin Cohen Mullen, will not returning to the United States on two seven fifteen. He remain in Israel with his mother. They are on holiday present, but will return shortly, and you will be contact. Thank you. My senses are supercharged. I'm blinking and shaking my head. My ears ring. Some blows hit you hard immediately, yet this is the oddest of blows. It will usher in the worst experience of my life and will resonate with me forever. But it strikes me first in a confusing and haphazard way. What exactly is this about? What is she doing? What does it mean Ben will not return? It's midnight as I type the email. I know Hillary won't read for hours. Eventually I get into bed, but of course I don't sleep at all, which the FAA advises isn't good. Her parents maintain they know nothing of the whereabouts of their daughter and grandson. The phone number of the house in Israel is already in my contacts list, of course, and I hit it and let it ring until the tone indicates the voicemail box is full. I repeatedly dial this number over and over again, all day, every day. Abduction. Some things have a name, and in defiance of the court order signed by Judge Rhonda Westfall, she has officially abducted our child now. Her smoking emails confirming our meeting at JFK it. Those amber alerts lighting up parkways and expressways, now I wonder if Ben's description will be flashing at motorists. Of course, now, and for years to come, some people will give me a fisheye look when I discuss these events, Well, it wasn't like he was really abducted. They're quite wrong. Ben really was abducted. I'm up all night Googling a topic I never dreamed I would need to research. It turns out in the United States, only about 3% of abducted children are taken by strangers. The creep in the back of the Dodge van is an anomaly since nearly all abductions are committed by family members, usually parents. And in thousands of such cases, these dramas end in violence, forced separation, even death. This is textbook abduction. All morning, my phone rings until the battery gives out, and I repeat the same odd details to family, friends, co-workers. My heart beats too fast and I feel lightheaded. By early afternoon, I realize I'll be at Hillary's office for several more hours, so I bang in sick. With my track record lately, it's the last thing I should do, especially three days before starting vacation. But leaving this office isn't an option. Hillary's partners have gathered us in a conference room, and despite the obvious need for the all-hands-on-deck strategy, part of me calculates that the legal bills for four attorneys working simultaneously, are going to be whopping. Hillary shakes her head. I never thought she would do it. The oldest partner sneers. Why not? We've seen worse. Earlier, a junior partner reached the newest attorney in Tel Aviv, but her Israeli lawyer proved less than helpful. She had no idea where they were holidaying, but they should be back within two months. My heart froze Two months? My worst fear is Ben's mother continually citing how Jewish law dictates a child is Jewish if the mother is. Will I be translating Hebrew before an Israeli court? I'm having trouble keeping up, but our agenda slowly takes shape. We're petitioning an emergency session with Judge Westfall and requesting the current joint custody agreement be overturned and I be awarded sole custody. She should be cited for abduction, contempt of court, and possibly perjury. There's further talk. Israeli courts, Interpol, the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Someone calls her New York attorney, the bandaged guy, and his admin claims he's vacationing. An hour later, a fax arrives stating he no longer represents her. She's down one lawyer, but I'm up several. My New York team advises me I'll require an attorney in The Hague where I'll need to plead my case that Ben should be returned to me under authority of an international treaty, and possibly I'll need another attorney in Israel if things there get rough. I don't dare ask what rough means, and I don't dare ask the cost of all this. And what of her? The legalities and finances and sheer horror of Ben's disappearance occupy me so thoroughly I've delayed pondering the motives of the, whatever she is, defendant, suspect, culprit, perpetrator. Who is she? It's 6 a.m. and I'm fully awake in bed. So much shift swapping has left me unaware of day and night. I think of Ben and of her. I focus on the first Thanksgiving after we married, when I worked an afternoon shift, and I looked up and saw her ascending to the tower, carrying a movable feast, even stuffing and cranberries. Her. I can remember waiting for her to walk through a door, then feeling my heart twang, holding her, confiding in her, dreaming with her. This child— now the focal point of strangers worldwide, we created that child together. I didn't understand ripping a relationship in half, yet I accepted it. But ripping a child in half? How could I have loved what I now realize was a stranger?